Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd and the PQ. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. Welcome to our episode of an 18-year-old with sore throat and unilateral left-sided neck pain for about two weeks. Here is the case presented by Rahul. An 18-year-old female presents to the emergency department with cough, fever, fatigue, sore throat, and unilateral left-sided neck pain for about two weeks. The patient has been also having nonspecific chest pain and has had decreased appetite as well as weight loss for the past month. Of note, the patient has had no recent travel, no history of any illicit drug use, no real sick contacts at home. When she comes into the emergency room, her heart rate's 105, blood pressure is 116 over 66, she's slightly febrile at 38.3, her respiratory rate's 35, and her weight is at 65 kilos. Her oxygen saturation was 100% on 2 liters nasal cannula. Now, her physical exam was negative, except her left side of her neck was tender to palpation. There was no real goiter or appreciable lymphadenopathy, and her abdominal exam did not show any hepatosplenomegaly. So initial chest x-ray was performed, and it was significant for possible multilobar pneumonia versus metastasis. So the emergency room got a chest CT, which revealed multifocal septic emboli in the lungs. Cardiology came and performed a bedside echocardiogram. This echocardiogram did not show any gross vegetation. She's had no rash or any trauma to the neck, no real difficulty swallowing, no oral ulcers, joint pain, or diarrhea. She's not had any recent dental procedures or any uh, sort of food exposures that were out of ordinary. She was admitted to the PICU as she has had hypotension requiring fluid boluses and lab work significant for hyponatremia, rhabdomyolysis, worsening acute kidney injury, elevated ferritin, as well as D-dimer. Her serum uric acid was slightly elevated at 9.9, her LDH was normal, and her ESR was slightly elevated at 78. Her serum lactate, troponin, and BMP were all normal. Her SARS-CoV-2 test was negative, and pertinently, her ultrasound of her neck revealed an occlusive thrombus in the left internal jugular vein. Blood cultures were sent, and now our patient is in the pediatric ICU. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, we have an 18-year-old female who presents with a fever, cough, sore throat, fatigue, weight loss, left-sided neck pain, hypotension with abnormal labs, including a concerning high white count with a left shift, anemia, acute kidney injury, elevated uric acid, and some mild elevation in ESR, a chest CT with possible pulmonary emboli, an ultrasound of the neck showing occlusion of the left IJ, all of which bring a concern for possible malignancy or pulmonary emboli for form of septic focus in the neck a possible diagnosis of Lemire syndrome. This episode will be organized in the following manner. We'll first start by defining Lemire syndrome. We'll talk about diagnosis. And then finally, we'll wrap up the episode speaking about management. So Rahul, 
how do we define Lemire syndrome? So Lemire syndrome is an interesting condition. It is also known as post-anginal septicemia or necrobacillosis. It is characterized by bacteremia, internal jugular vein thrombophlebitis, which our patient had, and metastatic septic emboli secondary to an underlying acute pharyngeal infection. Many of these features were seen in our case presentation. Now, Lemire syndrome was previously known as a forgotten disease as its incidence was decreasing due to the increasing use of antibiotics, especially penicillin for URIs. However, recently, there's actually been an increase in Lemire's disease, and this is due to decreased use of antibiotics due to antibiotic stewardship. Now, this recent increase in Lemire's syndrome is due to the decreased antibiotic use, and this has not been proven and does remain controversial in the literature. Rahul, what are some of the causative organisms in Lemire syndrome? The most common causative agent of Lemire syndrome is Fusobacterium necroforium. This is commonly a general pediatrics board question as well. This is followed by Fusobacterium nucleatum and anaerobic bacteria such as Streptococci, Staphylococci, and Klebsiella pneumonia. Rahul, can you tell our listeners about the pathophysiology of Lemire syndrome? Absolutely. So Lemire syndrome can occur in healthy adults, and it's more common in the adolescent population. So think about your 14 to 24-year-old males. Risk factors include immunocompromised patients as well as environmental conditions. Lipopolysaccharides in Fusobacterium necroforium have endotoxic properties and have important virulence factors. The causative bacteria actually invade the pharyngeal mucosa, previously weakened by some sort of viral or bacterial pharyngitis that precedes this syndrome. Now, the infection itself can spread to the lateral pharyngeal space, resulting in subsequent internal jugular vein, septic thrombophlebitis, as well as metastatic infections. Pneumonia, or even pleural empyema, is the most common metastatic infection in Lemire syndrome. Septic syndrome co-occurring with ear, neck, and pulmonary empyema is a rare emerging medical condition that could be related to Lemire syndrome. Now, proposed routes of infection are direct invasion and lymphatic or hematogenous spread to the connective tissue and associated clinical abscess formation, as well as distant septic embolic metastasis. Now, once the infection has reached the internal jugular vein, hematogenous spread to other sites can occur, causing various complications and ultimately death due to septic shock, especially if antibiotics are delayed. As mentioned before, remember the lungs are the most commonly affected organs in Lemire syndrome. This accounts for about 85% of cases. Now, lung lesions commonly appear as necrotic cavitary lesions, but can also present as infiltrates, pleural effusions, empyema, lung abscesses, and even as severe as necrotizing mediastinitis. Epidural and brain abscesses have been noted to be complications of Lemire syndrome and presumably result from the retrograde intracranial extension of the internal jugular vein and the thrombosis, which is in the uh, IJ. Less common infections include soft tissue abscesses, pyomyositis, splenic and liver abscesses, osteomyelitis, endocarditis, pericarditis, renal abscesses, and brain abscesses. Now, there is a phenomenon described in the literature known as atypical Lemire syndrome. This involves thrombophlebitis of vessels other than the internal jugular. 
It may also involve bacteria other than Fusobacterium necrophorium or F. nucleatum. So to summarize, Lemire syndrome, the disease course, is usually rapid and irreversible. Therefore, timely diagnosis and prompt antibiotic therapy is important. Lemire syndrome must be suspected in any patient with acute tonsillopharyngitis with persistent neck pain and septic syndrome. Septic pelvic thrombophlebitis complicated by multiple septic emboli after intrauterine device insertion has been reported in adults. So Pradeep, what are some clinical manifestations of Lemire syndrome? So in any patient, deep neck infections, subsequent septicemia, thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein, and metastatic infections, that is ascending or descending septic emboli, should arouse the suspicion for Lemire syndrome. In any ill-appearing patient with acute tonsillopharyngitis, well, patient who has throat pain, dysphagia, productive cough with high fevers, malaise, and neck pain with tenderness should lead to the suspicion of Lemire syndrome. Patients can also develop trismus. Most young people present with pharyngitis initially, but older age groups present with distant complications such as empyema or brain abscess. Persistent headache with focal neurological signs should alert the clinician of sagittal sinus venous thrombosis, brain abscess, or meningitis. Now, Rahul, if you had to work up this patient with Lemire syndrome, what would be your diagnostic approach? Well, as with many diagnoses in the pediatric ICU, a good history and physical exam is very important. Any ill-appearing patient with sore throat, high fever, neck pain, as well as tenderness should prompt further evaluation of Lemire syndrome. I would start with the CBC with differential blood cultures, both aerobic and anaerobic, as well as CRP and basic coagulation panels, as well as CMP. I would also try to obtain a contrast-enhanced CT of the neck, as this is the imaging of choice because it detects vascular thromboses of the internal jugular vein and any other complications such as pulmonary emboli, empyema, osteomyelitis, and brain or epidural abscesses. It's really important, though, to ensure that your patient is stable for CT or any other form of imaging. Once you get the CT and you have the diagnosis of Lemire syndrome, you will most likely see intraluminal filling defects, thrombosis, and enhancement of the internal jugular vein, along with local soft tissue swelling. You could also get a Doppler ultrasound, although this is less sensitive than CT. You may have to obtain this Doppler ultrasound, especially for patients who have AKI, because contrast may be contraindicated. Now, ultrasound will show echogenic regions within a dilated internal jugular vein or a complex mass of cystic and solid components. Ultrasound can also detect clots in blood vessels, as noted by flow restrictions in Doppler. MRI has been used in specific cases to detect IJ venous thrombosis, especially when CNS complications such as brain abscess is suspected. Echocardiography can also be useful to evaluate for intracardiac vegetations, especially in our patient who had multiple septic emboli in her lungs. Now, Pradeep, if our history, physical, and diagnostic investigation led us to Lemire syndrome, what would be your general management framework? That's an excellent question. I think any ill-appearing patient should be admitted to the PICU as the patient will require prompt attention to airway, breathing, and hemodynamics. Adequate IV access should be obtained, as these patients can become hemodynamically unstable 
due to sepsis. A multidisciplinary team approach involving the PICU, infectious disease, hematologists, and ENT experts is warranted. After appropriate cultures are obtained, metronidazole and beta-lectamase inhibiting agents like piperacillin tazobactam, ceftriaxone, or carbapenem should be initiated. Metronidazole is bactericidal. It shows excellent penetration in most tissues, including the CSF. If IJ separation is due to infected central venous catheter and not a complication of pharyngitis, then consideration should be given to initiation of vancomycin. Antibiotic therapy should be continued for at least three to six weeks. Once infection is controlled, therapy can be then switched to oral medications. Initial clinical response may be slow as Lemire syndrome is an endovascular infection and antibiotics may have difficulty penetrating the fibrin clot. Pleural effusion or abscess drainage may be required in selected patients. Another important aspect of therapy in Lemire syndrome is the use of anticoagulation therapy with heparin. Anticoagulation plays an important part in preventing septic emboli events originating from the internal jugular vein thrombosis. We typically start low molecular weight heparin, such as Lovenox, at a dose of 1 mg per kilo sub-Q twice a day with a goal heparin assay of 0.5 to 1, which is acquired four hours after the second or third dose of Lovenox. Please remember that Lovenox dose will need adjustment in face of acute kidney injury. Absolutely, Pradeep. And just to highlight the microbiology, Fusobacterium necrophorium is intrinsically resistant to macrolides, fluoroquinolones, tetracyclines, and aminoglycoside. Fusobacterium necrophorium is also resistant to penicillin G due to production of penicillinase or beta-lactamase. So Rahul, what are some of the clinical pearls or pitfalls to avoid while taking care of a patient with Lemire syndrome? I think the key which we have been driving home in this episode is to have early recognition. Any ill-appearing patient presenting with high fevers, sore throat, and neck pain tenderness should undergo evaluation for underlying Lemire syndrome. Now, once a septic thrombophlebitis has occurred, we should think about downstream complications, such as descending or ascending infections, pneumonia, empyema, or even brain abscesses. Remember, CT scan of the neck with IV contrast is the study of choice, but watch out for a patient's kidney function prior to administering contrast. Initiate antibiotics early after a blood culture with metronidazole and a beta-lactamase inhibiting antibiotic, such as ceftriaxone, zosin, also known as piperacillin tazobactam, or a carbapenem, such as meropenem. Anticoagulation therapy with low molecular weight heparin should be considered in consultation with hematology. Raul, excellent points. Now, this concludes our episode on Lemire syndrome. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by myself, Pradeep Kumar, and Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.